So what we have here is a very uh, personal letter from one uh, friend to another. It contains uh, greetings to the church, which is at Philemon's home in Colossae, but it is essentially a personal letter. Paul wrote um, letters, as you know, to the churches, um, but he also wrote some personal letters. I'm sure he wrote lots of personal letters, but in the scriptures we find uh, some personal letters, the letters he wrote to Timothy and Titus and here to Philemon. And in a similar way, if you uh, look at um, John's three letters, the, the second and the third are addressed to individuals who are named specifically. And they all appear in the scriptures. So they all have a message and a purpose. And they have something to say to us. This uh, letter is unlike lots of other letters of Paul because it doesn't um, address a particular heresy in the church and it doesn't address things that are going wrong uh, which is sometimes uh, the case. It's not addressed to a, a group of people, a body of people, a church family, as we were thinking this morning. It's addressed to uh, an individual. But nevertheless, as I read this and looked at it, I see it being all about relationship. I mean, look first of all at all the personalities and individuals that are mentioned by name in this letter. There are those that are with Paul in his prison cell. And there are those who are members of the church at Colossae, Philemon, and others. And as we read this, we see something here, we learn something of Philemon's love and of his faith. As Paul writes his prayer, not as it often is when we read these letters, for the church, but for Philemon personally. The, ch- the church at uh, Colossae was never visited by Paul. It was founded by Epaphras, who we read about, as also finding himself at this time in prison with Paul. And he was probably the person who reported to Paul all about the church at Colossae, what was happening there and so on. Uh, Because, of course, Paul uh, wrote a letter to the Colossian church. Colossians, which a few Sundays ago we looked at. And we looked at that passage in uh, chapter 1 of Colossians dealing with the supremacy of Christ, speaking of our uh, Savior as very God. And remember, that's the the very basis of what we believe as who we are as a church here. So aside from encouraging Philemon and the church of Colossae, this letter has a purpose. We read of the necessity and of the power of faith. We read of caring for others even when circumstances are not so great. And we see these things these characteristics in the writer and in the recipient. Let's look for a moment at the writer, at Paul. 
At this time, Paul was in prison. He, he writes about being in chains, uh, uh, and this is the situation uh, he writes in. Uh, nevertheless, whilst uh, in difficult, to say the least, circumstances himself, he writes and he prays for Philemon, verses 4 to 7, and he pleads or pleads for Onesimus in verses 8 to 21. Though he's a prisoner, he's still active, he's still busy. Many of the letters were written from prison. They have a, a certain character about them that you can sort of see. Um, they speak much more of the personality of Paul that, and the extent of his faith and love for the, for the saints. So although he was a prisoner, although things were difficult, although they were tough, he was still busy about uh, God's work. He didn't get lost in his own situation. It's easy and understandable to do that, isn't it? It certainly isn't for me as the preacher to tell somebody who's facing a tough time to sort of um, put that aside and get on with it. No way. And I wouldn't want anybody to interpret what I say this morning to sound like that. But we have a great example here, don't we, in the Apostle Paul, how that he was able to put those things to one side and to center his vision and his action on the things that really mattered and upon the people of God. He had a care for others regardless of himself. He was a truly a selfless uh, person in that sense. So he writes of himself as an old man and as a father. And I guess that's what we see, don't we? I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I, I have quite an active uh, imagination. And uh, I can sort of see uh, this man with the many years behind him, but still vital, still keen, still interested, still concerned about the goings-on around him, not in the place where he finds himself in prison in Rome, but in the wider world. And how did he do it? How did this network work? Well, we have clues in the letter, don't we? People traveled from place to place. These letters that he wrote were carried uh, by hand. If you go back to Colossians, for example, which is where we are, isn't it? Uh, we, we go back here. If you, if you go back to... Um, I can find it now. It, at the end of uh, chapter 4, the end of the book of Colossians, he, he says... Um, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. You see, people were moving about, delivering these letters to one another. We thought about that somewhat, didn't we? When way back, we, we looked at the seven churches, and we saw how you know, these letters circulated. People moved about, and somehow or other, they reported back to Paul. Rather like 
a spider at the centre of a web, but in the nicest possible way. And he was vitally interested in what was happening in the churches, in the world, what was happening to all the Christians that through his missions he had come to know and to meet. And he thought of them as his children. You can only do that when you get old, I think, can't you? Really, I think that's a part of it. But it's a lovely picture, isn't it, of an older man. Now, when I was uh, a teenager, I was in a little church, and there were men there. They were faithful. They were they were older because they you know they they were they were old enough to be my uh, father. Uh, They weren't, but they were. I see them as an example. Uh, and I remember them, you know, to this day. Their example of, of faithfulness, of, of sticking with it. When they uh, came home uh, from work, they were at the church, at the Bible study, in the prayer meeting, the evening ministry meeting, as we called it, out with the youth on a Friday. They were unstinting in their service for God. And... Uh, I, I took their example uh, to myself, and I remember those things uh, with a deal of, uh, uh, those people particularly, with a deal of fondness. So, you know, the lesson for us here is to get interested, isn't it? To be aware, to be concerned. Talking to the children, you know, I was using that illustration of us being family. And we'll see this develop as we go on to the, into this. But really, you know, we need to kind of keep an eye on one another, don't we? Know what we're up to. Know, know what our uh, difficulties are, where we can help. What's our prayer life if it's not fed by knowing what the needs are, as it were? So, we don't know the details surrounding this story, but it is clear that Philemon had cause to be not very pleased with Onesimus. He's mentioned it again in Colossians in chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. We read, The Tychius will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So and there's not a lot of detail around this, but we know he was a runaway slave who met Paul, who came to faith in Jesus and grew close to Paul in prison. So much so that Paul refers to him as a son. Those of you that got your Bibles, if you took a glance to the footnote at the bottom, didn't you? And it tells you Onesimus means useful. The uh, King James Version uses the word profitable, which I think is probably more apt for a slave, isn't it? Because if you possess something, you're kind of going to see what you can get out of it. And um, that uh, could bring us into debate about slavery, uh, which we know is an, an evil, an unacceptable thing. But we do have to realize that in the day and age in which... Um, 
Paul was writing and lived, and the early Christians lived their lives. It was it was part of their culture, and uh, uh, it might have been your lot in life to be a slave. And um, no one's saying that is necessarily a good thing. And there were, of course, benevolent masters, and not so. So here we have this runaway. Uh, slave who had been useful, but of course, uh, now as far as Philemon was concerned, he was pretty useless because he wasn't uh, he w- wasn't around. And so we come to Philemon himself, clearly a man of substance, a leader in the church, but also a spiritual man, recognised as a man with a love for God's people and a real faith in Jesus. That's quite something, isn't it? The things that Paul says um, about him. Uh, You know, that he was like that. That you have refreshed the hearts of the saints, uh, Paul writes. He had a reputation. And he had a a function in in the church where he was, of caring for others, of encouraging others. But you'll notice, whilst we've spoken of these individuals, that the Lord himself is nevertheless at the very heart of this letter. In verse 3, we read the usual greeting, but we shouldn't gloss over it as mere words. We read things like this in many of the epistles, and so we might say, oh, well, that's Paul with his usual thing. But Paul addresses This in verse 3, to the church at Philemon's home. The you there is plural. So this is the one point where he addresses, um, where where he's, he's, he's addressing the church, where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That's to the church. He's saying to all the people gathered there, he's giving them a greeting. And uh, that, you know, is what what he did. And uh, so he does that. But, you know, these words are not just there by chance. What is this grace? Everything hinges around this, doesn't it? The grace that God prays for them. That's the divine favor that comes from God. That's... God reaching out to us. That's God's gift of his son. That's the beginning of everything. In Ephesians, uh, we read, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, as I... um, sat at home and um, I don't know how other people do these things, but I start with scribblings and then I have to turn it into something that's, that's, that's legible. That, that's how it works. And as I typed this, I thought to myself, oh, I've, sa- I've said that before. I've, I've used that verse before. And um, I think one day I might do a search because I think I use it quite a lot. But I don't apologize for that. Because for me... 
It just says it. It's just the basis. I, you know, I can say to you, I'm a Christian. I can say to you, I love Jesus. I can say to you, I'm saved. I can say to you, I have a hope of eternity in heaven. But why? By grace. Because God has done it for me. Not because, um, you know, I'm quite able to read and understand things and even in a halting way communicate them or because I try to live a good life and all those things. No. It's because what God has done. And so... And I love this because Paul, at the end, he says, so that no one can boast. It's nothing about, about our, our gifts, our attributes, our abilities, or our good works. It's all about what God has done for us. And you see, we need to learn that. And Philemon certainly needed to learn that because Paul was going to ask him to do really given his culture, quite a difficult thing. We'll go on to see that in a moment. So Paul says, right, uh, praise to them, grace and peace. What is peace? Well, peace, that's that right relationship with God through his son Jesus. That's the being saved bit by grace through faith. That's attaining that relationship with God through Jesus, whereby our sins are forgiven uh, and forgotten, and we are restored to God. Have you noted in our reading how often Paul writes of Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ? He states twice that he is a prisoner, not of the Romans, but of Christ Jesus, in verses 1 and 9. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the reason and the means for everything in Paul's life. He's the object of Paul's faith in verse 5. Or Onesimus' faith. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. He's the source of his love. I hear about your faith and your love in the Lord Jesus. He's the source of every good thing so that you will have understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. I, I sometimes have to sort of, I know I often have to tell myself off because we read things and we don't think, do we? Every good thing Everything you have, whether it's your degree of health, wealth, family, all the things God have blessed, has blessed you with are in Christ. In our lives, we, of course, we do, we do achieve things, don't we? Um, and perhaps we don't achieve our full uh, potential. But we've really come to an understanding of our relationship with God and with his son Jesus when we realize that they are the source of every good thing. And we read in verse 8, he is the source of authority. 
although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Notice there, Paul isn't saying, as an apostle, with my apostolic authority, I could order you to. No, he writes and says, in Christ. Paul here is simply reminding Philemon of things. He's not saying, oh, this is what you must do because I uh, say so. Church leadership is about being the servant of everyone. It isn't about any sort of um, authority uh, that uh, tells anyone what they ought to do. It might be about gently leading somebody in the right direction, but, uh, which is what Paul is doing here. So Paul could have used that apostleship as authority to demand that Philemon treated Onesimus kindly, but rather he used the authority of Christ himself to plead for Onesimus. He was asking Philemon to live up to his character and demonstrate that God-given fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember love and faith? By reaching out to Onesimus as a brother rather than a slave. A brother rather than a slave. So, I said at the beginning that I saw this very much about relationships. And uh, as we've seen, everything begins with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the relationship we have with God through him. Paul tells us in Ephesians, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Romans, we're described as children and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We are his children in fact. Not just as a a title that we would have, like, you know, some might describe us as Christian or evangelical or whatever. To describe us as the children of God is to describe, if we know and love Jesus as our Savior, is to describe us as who we actually are. That's what that verse in Ephesians is saying. God has adopted us into his sonship. He has said to us, You are my son or my daughter. We have a really unique and wonderful relationship. And this moves on, doesn't it? We are his children, as I said, in fact. We're heirs looking forward to an eternal inheritance, an eternity shared with the Lord. And as a consequence, we, as his church, here, the family of God, have a different relationship with one another. We have become a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul uses various words to describe this 
relationship. He uses the word fellow, the idea of fellowship. We like that, don't we? Some people don't. They think it's an old-fashioned word that you shouldn't use anymore because it's sort of... um, Well, I don't know. I don't know what people think, but it's a really great way of describing things, isn't it? I always think of it as everybody all in the same boat, as it were. Quite a simplistic thought, I know. But a good, you know, for me, a good description. But Paul here writes in verse 1 about fellow workers and fellow soldiers. And in verse 23, he speaks of a fellow prisoner, speaking of Epaphras, another uh, Colossian we've already talked about. You see, this fellowship is about being engaged together in the work of God, about spreading the good news of the gospel by word and deed, and about sharing the consequences of that, hence the fellow prisoner part. Uh, On Sunday, the 22nd, uh, God willing, Laurie's going to speak to us on being a member of of the church. This isn't just about signing up to be part of a club. Yes, a club of believers. But it's much more than that. It's about a commitment. A commitment to a partnership. As in verses 6 and 17. To work together. That's why Paul uses those phrases like fellow soldier. A soldier signs up and commits himself to fight for and with his comrades and to obey orders. The word, I know I said this before as well, as of lots of other preachers, there's no word that appears in the scripture by chance or because, oh, that's a useful word to put there. It really means something. Paul used the example of soldier for a reason. Just in the same way as when you get into Ephesians, he uses the example of a soldier when he speaks of putting on the whole armor of God. It was something that everybody would have understood. Soldiers were all over the place in those days. They would have understood it, but they would have understood the concept of being committed. A soldier didn't go to the recruiting office one day, do his basic training and decide... The first time he got to a battle, oh, I'm not sure about this soldiering business now. Well, maybe some did run away. But that's not the idea, is it? The idea is you're committed. You're committed to the fight. You're committed to the battle. And you're committed to your comrades. That's the, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the really uh, important thing, that you um, have that uh, comradeship. That's a fellowship. So that's sort of how it works practically in the work of the church, in the work of furthering the gospel. We do it together. We commit to one another. But then Paul goes on to speak of deeper relationships. In verse 1, when he greets Timothy... When he, sorry, when he writes his greeting to them, he sends a greeting from Timothy, our brother. We all know Timothy, don't we? Two books, one Timothy, two Timothy, uh, the pastor of the church there. And um, in verse 16, speaking of Onesimus returning to Philemon, he says, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, 
as a dear brother. Now, truthfully, I don't think we can quite grasp what Paul was saying here because we weren't part of the culture of that time. We, we weren't uh, part of a culture where the rich owned slaves, maybe in the same way as we today might own a motor car. Treated them better, one would hope, but, you know, you would, you would get the idea. Philemon was probably wealthy, if he had slaves, that was true, and an influential person in Colossae who became a Christian and stuck his neck out by having a church in his home. That was, you know, stepping out in faith, as it were, and Paul has already said about how he was a great uh, helper to the other uh, Christians in the church there. But now Paul's asking him to do something, to take a step further. Slavery was a fact of the time, as I've said. And in fact, again, if we go back to the, the letter which arrived with this letter, the letter to the Colossian church, in uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, he writes, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And again, in Ephesians, if you go to Ephesians chapter 6, you find a reference to masters and slaves there. So you see, this is the norm. So Onesimus could, could read or hear, Master, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. That's okay, isn't it? But Paul wrote to him personally and said, No, you make this slave a dear brother. Just like your... Let's make an assumption that Onesimus had family, brothers and sisters. You make your slave like them, just as if you would treat them. I'm reminded at this point of uh, two other brothers. Do you remember them? The story the Lord told of the uh, prodigal son, as we often call him, or the lost son. When he came back, having spent all the money in rags, smelling of the pigs, an absolute wreck, a total waste. What does his father do? He embraces him as his son. He says, come on, get a robe and a ring. My son, who was dead, is alive. There was no inquest or anything. The other brother, who's already there in this privileged position, what does he do? He takes umbrage. He wouldn't join the feast. He goes off in a sulk. How sad that he couldn't embrace his brother as his father could. But uh, Onesimus here is being asked to go beyond. Nothing tells us he was a cruel master. But Paul does ask him uh, to 
change his status, as it were. He tells him, he's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul wants this relationship to change dramatically. Why? Because they've become brothers in the Lord. Because the same grace that has touched Philemon has touched Onesimus. The same God that reached out to Philemon reached out to Onesimus. The same Savior who gave his life on the cross for Philemon gave his life for Onesimus. So there's no distinction, is there? And again, if you know, in other letters in Ephesians, Paul makes this clear, doesn't he, where he speaks of there being no, you know, no rich and no poor and no, uh, you know, there being no distinctions. We're all one in the Lord. So, what's the conclusion of all this? It's a really interesting story, isn't it? And lots of really interesting nuances to it. Well, for me, I rejoice in that wonderful relationship of being a child of God through no merit of my own, but because of his love and grace and the death of his son, Jesus, on my behalf. But then I need to realize that as a child of God, I'm part of a family of God's people with all the joys, challenges, and responsibilities that entails. I wonder, could anyone say of you or of me what we read in verse 7? Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. There's a challenge for us to go away with uh, this morning, hopefully rejoicing with me in the wonderful relationship we have with God our Father, with the Lord Jesus, his Son, with the Holy Spirit that empowers us, and with one another. Amen.